This is the Word of God, amen? amen. Good job, brother. I appreciate uh, you reading this week. Amphip- Amphipolis. That's a, that's, a, that's a mouthful right there. Thank you, Dylan. Um, Acts 17 is most famously known for Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, which uh, we're going to, you know, that's in the heart of Athens, Greece. We're going to get to that next week. Uh, so just, I mean... There's not a lot of sermons actually that have been preached, at least in the guys I listen to. Uh, sometimes when I prepare my sermons, I like to try to find, you know, and listen to other pastors and I always try to mix that up. And I was so discouraged with this passage that I could not find a lot of teaching on these cities. And, uh, but that's okay. Uh, hopefully, hopefully, maybe this will be a mere attempt uh, by the grace of God alone to make up for some lack of teaching. We're not looking at Paul famously in Athens yet. This morning is a tale of two cities. All right, as your sermon title says there, and how the Apostle Paul planted churches in both of the cities you just heard read about Thessalonica and the Berean people in Berea. All right, Uh, cities play a prominent role in helping me and you understand the book of Acts. Do you remember 17 chapters ago, all the way when we talked about this book in introduction, that Acts will actually run from a city to a city in its beginning and in its end? Do you remember? It starts with the most important city biblically, and maybe you could argue it all, um, and, and it starts with Jerusalem, right? The city of God. And we go from Jerusalem to Rome, Rome, which, um, you know, arguably you could say of all time is one of the most important cities, but certainly in that time, the most important political city of the time. Acts is showing you how the gospel is going to go from Jerusalem to Rome, and then eventually the whole world, as me and you know it's sitting here today. Cities matter. And in Luke's study, cities matter a lot um, throughout the whole book. And this morning, we are seeing the faithfulness of God as the gospel comes to find a place in a people, a church in Thessalonica and in Berea. Now, these cities are as close in distance as Nacogdoches is to Jacksonville, all right? 50 miles And so if you had to uh, kind of get it in your head on a map, these cities are within 50 miles of each other, and they both are going to uh, see fruit from the laborious gospel witness of Paul, of Silas, and of Timothy and, and their companions. Now that happens, and that is going to be our outline, all right? We're going to look at the church of Thessalonica first, and then we're going to look at the church of Berea. We're going to try to learn from these city churches. And when we do it, both of them, we're going to look at it with three simple, like a lens of each city. So in the city of this, the church of Thessalonica, we're going to see Paul's plan. We're going to see the people's response. And then we're going to see persecution. All right. Paul's plan, the people's response and persecution. And then we'll see the same thing in Berea. Paul's plan, the people's response and persecution. My hope as we study this. And as we preach it, he said, we can take some applications away as we seek to plant and be a church here as we are in Nacogdoches. I think there are many things that we can learn from the example of Paul and them in these two cities. Excited? Okay, I hope so. So listen, verses one through three shows us Paul's plan as they arrive in Thessalonica. Now, looking at one through three, you have to conclude that when it comes to Paul's plan, There's nothing flashy or sophisticated. There's nothing in those first three verses you just heard read to you as Paul plans to evangelize a whole city. Okay? Before we see what he actually does, 
Why don't we understand his plan in the negative first? And let's talk about what he doesn't do. Do you notice that Paul does not seek to entertain these people with anything when he gets there? There's no entertainment. There's no smoke and mirrors. There's no drama. James Montgomery Boyce in his commentary says, you know, Paul doesn't seek to coerce them either. Okay? He's not seeking to beat them over the head with the Bible until they are pressured to make some decision. That's not what he does. Paul didn't live among them in some subversive kind of secret way, encouraging them to kind of get to know him before he has his message presented. There's nothing subversive about his actions. What did he do? Well, the Bible says he did as was his custom. You see that, right? In verses 1 and 2. As he, as he, you know, Luke maps out for you where we are. We're in Thessalonica. We've traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia. And now we've arrived at this mega city. It was in that day a big city, a very prominent city, a coastal city. It sat on a harbor. And so there was tons of activity going in and out. But as was Paul's custom, when there was a synagogue of the Jews in a city, he went there. Okay? Now Paul would go into Jewish synagogues where he was welcome. And he would do that in the hope of, when I show up to a city, I'm going to start with people, his hope was, that show some sign of religious affection that is for God. Some sign that there is a religious affection for God, Yahweh, the God of the, the Bible. Okay, Because his hope would be, if they have a little bit of hope in that, they're going to hopefully hear the saving message of Jesus Christ. Good plan, right? Well, listen, actually, if you remember... And it really hasn't gone well for Paul when he's done that. And it's going to keep getting worse. Do you remember in Acts 13, you know what it said? Paul's plan was? When they arrived, they proclaimed the word of God, verse 5, in the synagogues of the Jews. Sounds a lot like this. You'd be right. This is his plan every single time. In Acts 13, when he did that, a Jewish false prophet, a false teacher showed up and turned him, uh, tried to turn a Roman leader against Paul and Barnabas at that time. Okay, And whatever happened there, it probably contributed to the scaring away of one missionary that was with them, John Mark. So whatever happened probably contributed to the reality of this is a really difficult thing to do, to plant and to pray and to preach and to see a church form. And, and, and to much less to, to start with the synagogues really already seems difficult. So in Acts 13, we get Paul's sermon recorded. You know where he was preaching a first sermon? Another city north of that one, Pisidia Antioch. And after he preaches, you know what happens? The Jews that are there incite the Greek leaders in that city, and they try to throw them out of the city. Paul's plan. A chapter later in Acts 14.1, it said, At Iconium, a new city, they entered where? The Jewish synagogue. And the Jews there get so mad that they make an attempt to abuse them, to mistreat them, and to stone them. But Paul and them flee. They were able to get away from it. After that, those same Jews follow them, send them to, you know, they send their people to the next city that Paul went to, Lystra. And now Paul there heals a lame man. He's not even in a synagogue now. He's just, he heals a lame man. And the whole city wants to throw him, you know, uh, wants, wants to worship him as God, you know, uh, is the idea. But, but, but you know how it all ends? Paul's trying to tell him about Jesus. And then who shows up? The Jews again to do what? To, you know, Cause him more terrible things. And they do. They actually stone him outside of that city, leaving him for dead. Now, I'm reminding you of all this because 
Paul's plan, after all those terrible encounters, and now we get him here in Acts 17, right, where he does come to a city, and, and, he, and he has to think about, how am I going to engage uh, Thessalonica? And he thinks he's going to go to the synagogue again? Paul's plan, after all those terrible encounters, to do the same thing. <laughs> Why? Well, Romans 1 tells us. Paul writes and says that he's a man who is not ashamed of the gospel. Okay, Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. But that's not the end of Romans 1.16. It also says, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Do you hear that? The Jew first, for Paul was a mandate. And to him, it flowed from his understanding of what Jesus taught. You see, when, when Paul says to the Jew first and then to the Greek, he sounds like Jesus. Because in Matthew 15, 24, Jesus answers one who is not of Israel, and he tells them, I was sent only, Jesus says. That word could be firstly, chiefly. I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. You see, Paul knows the word of God, Paul listened to the Savior, Christ, who showed up, and Paul uh, valued God's plan over his own safety or his own preference, over his own strategy. God has you know, no, shown in Jesus that this Messiah, this Christ, is a Jewish Messiah who comes to the Jews, who obeys God's law perfectly, who dies at the hands of those who reject him, and that message must continue to go, as long as Paul can do it, to the Jew first and to the Gentile. Now, this is the apostle to the Gentiles. If anybody has a plan to reach people that have nothing to do with Judaism or Jewish Christianity, it's going to be this guy. And yet he's willing to submit himself to God's plan. Paul's plan was always, God's plan is better than my plan. He never let the distractions that can get someone off of a true plan to witness, uh, you know, like, like try to be subversive or try to do those negatives. He never let those cloud his vision. He saw God's word for what it was, and then he pursued it. Think of this. Every time Paul's preaching the scriptures, he ain't grabbing Matthew like we are. He's grabbing the Old Testament scriptures. So we've got a, a strict mandate from the words of Jesus passed on to him orally now. You know, at this point, maybe the Gospels have been circulating. But for the most part, Paul is authoritatively looking at, oh, it makes sense that Jesus said that because God has had a people from the beginning. And he shows up to the synagogues and he says, the Moses you're listening to, the prophet that was going to be raised up like Moses, Jesus Christ. This Jesus is that prophet. Oh, David, who you love and who reigns and, and his throne will end, for, you know, will never end forever. This Jesus is that David's descendant. This is Paul's obsession. My point, Paul knew the word of God. He listened to the word of God taught in the person of Jesus. He believed and he preached Jesus as he preached Jesus as the word. Application. What, what, what can we think about from such a plan? Okay. What can me and you do? Well, listen, application, I think, from this, Paul's plan for us is simple but dangerous. It's simple but dangerous. This is what I mean. Me and you, if we're going to follow Jesus and we're going to follow Paul's example, we're going to be faithful to the end of our lives to witness, we must realize we got to get over our comforts. we got to get over our wants. we got to be willing to give up a lot to gain almost nothing, to gain everything when we die. We have to preach the gospel as God has planned it to be preached. 
Y'all, we need churches that will stop praying silly prayers like, God, keep us safe. You ever heard this notion? It is an, an indictment on the American church, the evangelical church for sure, when our obsession with prayer about what we're to do in our cities and in our churches and in the, in the places we exist to beg God for more safety. It makes zero sense to pray that God would keep us safe on the highway as we go somewhere. If we're not willing to say that, you know what, let me not be safe on the highway and let me have a hundred opportunities in my dangerous, you know, things that may happen to me to witness about Jesus. We got to start letting the dogmas of this right here. Paul had a word from the Lord. What was it? The scriptures go and preach. And no matter what, even if it hurts, preach the gospel. We need Paul's obsession. We need Paul's determination, his willingness to put up with Jewish snobbery in the hope of the gospel. He knows what he's getting into. He knows that to go have another conversation with another Jewish Christian or, or a Jewish, I'm putting you know, air quotes around it, follower of God, someone who is there trying to check all the boxes. They look religious. They look good. Everything's great. He knows he'll run into a spirit of Pharisaism that Jesus ran into. He knows he will have to speak the gospel to people who assume that they're good with God. He knows it and he doesn't avoid it. He goes there. And he goes there not even like in a, in a bitter way. He goes there with this awesome hope that God may save some of them. I think an application for me and you is to endure, if you have them in your life, your lost family. Endure your coworkers that don't know Christ. Endure cultural Christians that have a faux faith, that is a false faith. Endure them with love. Follow the plan of Paul. Go to them and say, this Jesus... This Jesus that loves you, even though you want to put nationalism above him, you want your patriotism maybe to be above him. Maybe you want your, your personal freedom to be above him. Maybe you want whatever weird theological position you want to try to pull. This Jesus, as Paul said, who I proclaim to you, proclaim to them is the Christ. Go to them, brothers and sisters. The plan of Paul is to go to the city of Thessalonica and to go to a place where he knows he's going to have confusion and difficulty and hard conversations, and yet he's able. Why? God gets him there. God, God is with him. He knows this is God's plan, and he rests in it. Maybe another big application this morning is, are you preaching this Jesus? Are you laboring alongside someone faithfully in your prayers? Right now, in your time, in your discomfort, maybe, that you may be with them for the sake of the gospel, are you? Don't make the application for churches this morning. Make it for yourself. If I ask you today to write down at least one name of a lost soul that you are proclaiming this Jesus to regularly, could you do it? If not, beloved, could you write down with a blank there a certain hope you have when you do meet that person. And therefore, you're eager to be looking for opportunities. If not, you won't let Paul, Paul's plans will not spur you on to get a plan yourself that honors and glorifies God. It, it'll discourage you. Me and Blake, we can help you with this as elders. We can, we can speak to you about it in your elder care meetings that we have with you, don't we? I mean, we ask the question regularly in this church, what is your relationship to Jesus like? 
We want to pray for you, equip you. And then, hey, what is your relationship like with those in the church and out of the church? What does it look like? How can we help you find the plan in God's word so you do have one person that you go to with the urgency Paul went into Thessalonica and Berea with? We want to help you. One more thing about Paul's plan. Notice the words used by Luke concerning his delivery when he did get there. Do you see it says he reasoned with them from the scriptures? Explaining and proving. You hear these words? Do you notice that Paul was a man who was able to reason and explain and even prove in order to persuade these people in Thessalonica? You need to make note of this. The church in Thessalonica was filled with people that needed someone to reason with them and explain. Reason, the word is to converse, to discuss, and to argue. (laughs) I mean, these these Christians in this church get made up of a bunch of people that evidently needed someone to come there and really work hard to try to convince them. When it says explaining, the word is to open or to interpret. They literally did not understand. He had to then go after he preached and explain and interpret to them. He had to labor with them is the idea here. When it says proving, the word is set before them or to put beside them. I mean, he had to basically say, you're not saved. Here's this Jesus to believe. And they had to keep doing that. And they would say maybe something like, you know, okay, I get it. Like, you know, Jesus, you know, Jesus is this. And Paul would be like, no, no, no. This Jesus, the gospel is this, not that. He he did it, man. He he labored. Here were the Thessalonian uh, Jews and and these God-fearing Gentiles that were among them. And they're just carrying on their religious lives that they live. And then all of a sudden, Paul and Silvanus, which is Silas, and Timothy show up. And they put a rock in these people's shoe. That's what it means to be a Christian. If you have a plan to go reach people, if they need to be reasoned with and explained and proved, then there's this commitment that we see in Paul and them that he knows, okay, I'm going to be persuasive, but it may not happen yet. But if I can just put a rock in their shoe, you know what I'm talking about? Imagine a little pebble that gets in your shoe when you have to go on a huge hike all day long. And there you are hiking, and at first it's like, oh, a little bit of discomfort, no big deal. But you notice it, you kind of can't kick it, right? By the time you get through one mile, all of a sudden that pebble is now starting to feel like somebody done cut your foot open. Why? Because you can't ignore it. You could try to ignore it, but it's going to just wear at your foot till eventually it creates the wound that needs to be seen, okay? That's the idea of Paul's ministry here in Thessalonica. He's willing to go this distance. Paul, Silvanus, Timothy. I mean, some of these guys get left behind in these places, right? One thing you need to note about Paul, when he preaches, Jesus is the offense, not Paul. Every time. Okay? And and not just Paul, but Peter as well. They both write later letters, having been these wonderful missionaries. And they write to the churches, even these churches here, and they show that the Old Testament prophesied that Jesus, he's the one that becomes a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense to those people that we share him with. Okay? That's whoever believes in in Jesus will not be put to shame. And Paul and them, when when they get bold and they're wanting to offend, they're not doing it themselves. They're not these rude, loud voices that everybody's got on Facebook and Twitter right now that are thinking we can somehow be winsome if we just slander and tear people down in our arguments. That's not the kind of persuasion we're looking at here. 
What they did was, is they used all the skills they could to put the one stumbling block, the real offender, Jesus Christ, before these people. See, these, these Thessalonians were coming to Jesus with these other things. And through the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the teaching, Paul and them are, are, are seeing God remove those barriers. Right? But, but that's not the focus. The focus is not you're condemned because of these barriers. The focus is you can't see what you need to see because of these barriers. So I'm going to get it real clear and the barriers will fall away. And that's what happens here. Now, those who don't believe in this stone are the ones, ironically, who pick up stones and will try to kill Paul. Okay? But Paul doesn't care. Like, he loves Jesus enough to let Jesus offend them. And if Jesus offends them and then they get violent toward him, so be it. His life is like dung in that regard. Let it be nothing to him. If they saw Jesus clearly and they want to crucify him again, let them do that. That's Paul's approach. Some application for this before we go to the people's response. I think when you see this language about, like, you know, Paul's ability to be able to do this, you need to ask yourself, am I able to do this? Am I able to defend, to articulate, to ask questions? Am I able to reason and explain and prove that Jesus is the Christ? I promise if you never seek opportunities to go and share the gospel with people, you'll never know if God's given you the gift or not in the moment uh, to be able to reason and explain that Jesus is the Christ. But Paul's plan must become ours if we want to put the rock of offense into the shoe of the lost people of Nacogdoches. It must. And we need to understand that there is some application here. Again, I want to tell you, if you're interested in being trained in that kind of confidence in the scriptures like Paul had, see me and Blake. We actually have a class upcoming. Some of you have taken it. We want to teach before we go out and do evangelism. We want to say, hey, what does it look like for us to be a people who can reason and explain and prove that Jesus is the Christ? Now, that was Paul's plan. It won't be as long uh, when we see in the next city of Berea. You know why? Sorry about that. Because it doesn't really change. <laughs> it doesn't change. So when we get to the second point here, it's not going to change. Paul's going to do the same thing, which is unheard of. That's Paul's plan in Thessalonica. Now, how did the people respond? Well, look, look what happened. Did some believe it? Well, the answer, gloriously, is yes. You look, look at verse 4 again with me. Verse 4 says, Some of them were persuaded. Joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. I mean, I read this kind of stuff, and I'm just like, wow. Look at that. Some of these Jewish leaders and women in the synagogue, some of the local devouts, that'd be the God-fearing Greeks that were there, and it says not a few, meaning a lot. A lot of the leading women came to faith in Jesus in Thessalonica. That's amazing. I mean, make note, the Bible's not sexist. I mean, much of its successful ministry ends up being shown to be on the backs of faithful women. It seems like when there's a desire to try to number these people, it's the leading women that come to an understanding that are outnumbering the men even. What a reception. I mean, you should read this and praise the Lord. Notice, though, that, uh, you know, how did they come to faith? Did you notice that it said they were persuaded? So persuaded is the word uh, Luke uses here. It means that they were convinced. It means that it, and it implies that they were likely skeptical at first, right? Needing help to get there. Maybe took some time, possibly some debate. 
I just want you to, I just want you to know, beloved, that when you go out to reach people with Christ, sometimes this is the reception you get, is the type of people that have to be persuaded. And I want you to see that God's in the business of saving people that come to him like that. Right? It is belief. It's just not that the kind that responds immediately. But I want you to know that the response of this people tells us that Paul and his companions, they were patient evangelists. They weren't in a rush. And this week I've prayed for this kind of patience. I mean, at times it has meant for me rebuking my own self and praying things like, God, make me patient. Right? Be patient, Wesley. Don't rush God. These are conversations I've had in my own heart. I want you to pray this with me, church. Pray it for one another. Pray it for yourself. We must keep preaching and sharing, and we must believe that some may be persuaded and join. Amen? Well, that is the response. It's brief, but I think it's beautiful. You know, you don't need to go into uh, detail about something that's going to be known and enjoyed forever in eternity. You don't have to go into detail about true saving faith. It stands on its own and, 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 it, and is exciting. And so immediately we know from this one verse, some were persuaded, some continue. Well, what happens? Persecution happens. Okay? So in the cities of Thessalonica and Berea this morning, it's very clear. Paul has a plan. Right? The people respond. And then thirdly, you know what happens? You heard it read. Persecution. <laughs> um, verse 5 shows the main issue, okay? The Jews were jealous. The Jews were jealous. It's never good when someone's acting on their jealousy, is it? Ever. They literally stir up the city into a riot against Paul and them. It says that they go to the rabble, uh, which is super crazy. Uh, they go to these worthless, evil men, people that they know are just absolutely like the worst guys, mercenaries essentially, uh, but, not, but not in like a sophisticated military way, like bums. Okay, They go, go to the, the worst. This is Luke being like, hey, look, these cities also had these kind of things. It's like, whoa, look, that's like the worst of the worst over there. This people, they go there because they know that they can get a row out of them. I mean, yikes, right? I mean, just think about how crazy that is. And now to really understand the persecution, I think we need to look at verses 6 and 7 where they begin to accuse Jason. Now, we don't know anything about Jason except that when this happened, Jason is clearly one of those people. Maybe he was a God-fearer or a Jew, but he's opening his home after he's been persuaded. So this guy is truly committed. You know, maybe the first church in Thessalonica was meeting in, in his home at times. Okay, I don't know. But, but we do know that Jason is named. And, you know, you'll notice in 6, these men, uh, the accusation comes forward. And they bring these charges to Paul and his friends. And look at 6 and 7 with me. Okay, these men, they say, are men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Hmm. Well, that's actually a half true, all right? Everything they just said, two accounts here, they turn the world upside down, and they're preaching another king. Well, one of those is true, the other one is false. You'll notice the phrase, turn the world upside down. Um, in all actuality, brother and sister, I want to tell you this morning that the world, the world was created right side up. The world was created the right way. God made it perfect for his great glory. 
and he put mankind in it for his glory. And mankind walked upright with him to his glory. And it wasn't until sin entered the world and fractured it that it truly became an upside down world. And so the irony here is, is that these sinners, these people who reject the notion that in Christ, God is reconciling this upside down world back to its rightful state. They have suppressed that truth, ignoring in God's creation, ignoring in the Old Testament scriptures, ignoring in the prophets that had come, ignoring, ignoring and suppressing and suppressing. They actually believe the upside down world they live in is right side up. So when these normal Christians, mind you, Paul, Sylvanus, Timothy, you're like, Paul ain't normal. Actually, he is normal. When it comes to the order of what is right and righteous, he's doing the right thing. <laughs> and when he does the right thing and Jesus blesses it, it challenges sinners. It frustrates them. It, it reminds them of the strong delusion that they're under. It, it, it helps them, hopefully, to see that what they're in is a rebellion against God. What they call right is wrong. And so, yes, in every sense, they're actually right. It does seem like these men have turned the world upside down. It's ironic, but true. They are unapologetically, Paul and them, flipping people's worlds upside down. The only thing is they know they're flipping them right if they believe, right? But I said it's only a half truth because the rest is a made up lie. It's a made-up lie. These city leaders, they begin to act in violence against Jason. I'm sure the plan would have been to find Paul and, and Silas and either stone them or kill them, but they've actually escaped at this point and gotten away. Jason must have let him go out the back door. And there's Jason, and this huge riot has broken out. And then even though me and you know Jesus is the king of kings, you need to understand Paul is the last person that you can accuse of usurping local governments. The last one. Because every time Paul's going to make an appeal at the end of this book, he is honoring the emperor, which is crazy. Paul, go read him in Romans 13 and 14, takes a whole chapter and 12 to tell you, submit to authority because God has the ultimate authority. These Christian leaders were the last people to say, let's go overthrow, you know, and, and start a kingdom by starting with overthrowing Caesar. So this is a lie. It's a lie from the persecution and so what do they do? They end up not finding them. They rob Jason <laughs> blind. That's so messed up, right? Uh, and then they probably, you know, that probably gives these Thessalonian believers a, a, good, a good threat now, right? They better hush this gospel news, this nonsense. Now, despite their best efforts, and even despite this young, you know, group of, of baby Christians losing Paul, mind you, right? So Thessalonians now, despite the best efforts of the persecution, despite them now losing Paul and Silas and Timothy, a faithful church is planted, nonetheless. The church of Thessalonica. Isn't that awesome? When you really break it down, when you apply it, when you think about it, Paul had a plan, all right? It was God's plan. They, God got a response. The people responded, and who was chosen in Christ was saved to the glory of God. And when persecution arose and it drove out their, their leaders, the church persevered. People stayed through it. Now let's look at the church of Berea. Second, second point here. The church of Berea is in verses 10 through 15. I want to keep the same approach. Let's see Paul's plan. Let's see the people's response. Let's see persecution. Paul's plan. Well, look, like I said earlier in the longest point of my sermon, Paul's plan doesn't change. Look at verse 10. When they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. <laughs> 
Now, I don't know about you, but I'm just like, why, bro? Like, that's such a bad idea. Why? Well, I've already explained to you, you know? He took Christ's words seriously. He took God's unfolding plan of redemption seriously. He knows through Israel's promised Messiah to them first, some will believe on the way to the inclusion of so many more who will believe. That's why the apostles of the Gentiles can submit to God's plan that God saves the Jew first. Okay? You know that now. Same plan, same Paul. Preach the scriptures. We know he did because of the small part of verse 11 describing their reaction. But look, verse 11b, they received what? The word with all eagerness. What was Paul's plan? Preach the word. You cannot receive a word unless you hear a word. And you cannot hear a word unless someone is sharing that word. And that's Paul, and that's his plan. Preach the word, preach the gospel. Preach Jesus and see what happens. It's a good plan. Let's look at the people's response. At this point, you're probably like, if he's going to the Jews again, he's going to be ducking stones, right? I mean, he's, he keeps getting by by the skin of his teeth. Like, you know, he's getting ready to, for a fight or to run. Am I? If you're Paul, that's what you're thinking. But you already know from my brother reading he doesn't need to be guarded with this city. These Berean people in this synagogue of Berea, which is just 50 miles south and west of that great capital city of Thessalonica that he was just in, these people are entirely different. Entirely different. Just 50 miles away and entirely different. Now, we could theorize and strategize all day about why. Why are the Bereans in the synagogue there different? I mean, maybe we could say they're probably less liberal, right? They're probably more away from the bigger ideas of the big city. It's a smaller city. And so we could say maybe there's less liberal thinking and more conservative thinking. And we would be applying our own kind of thoughts about what we think about today's lands. You know, maybe we could do some of that biblically. Maybe we could say things like, you know, less population left them with more time to listen. When Paul shows up, telling about Jesus in the synagogue. Maybe less entertainment, right? You know, people out in West Texas, they'd sit around and shoot rabbits, <laughs> talk to each other on the back of truck beds, right? Maybe these Bereans are simple, simple small town folk. And so they got lots of time. And the big city people, they're just too busy to listen to this. We could do all those things. But the truth is, we don't know why they were different. And we shouldn't theorize. We just know that they had a different reaction to the word of God. Something in the Word of God met something in them, and it created something beautiful. And I want you to see that this morning in their response. We don't know the specifics of the difference. We shouldn't theorize, but the Word of God makes it clear. What sets apart the Bereans as noble, as the text said, okay? The Jews in this synagogue were more noble than those in Thessalonica. Look at verse 11, and it's full now. These Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. <laughs> what we have in Berea are Jews who actually read their Bibles and understand what God has been saying all along is now true all of a sudden for them in Paul's preaching. That's outstanding. That is outstanding, beloved. You see what they did? They heard the word and then they said, we want to hear more about this, but, but you got to give us a minute. And they went and they said, we need to examine the scriptures. Look in your Bible, capital S, 
the, the words, the, the actual writings to see if these things were so. Paul, they're not being hostile. They're not looking for, you better give a better articulation than that. What do you mean? What do you mean Jesus is David's son? How do you know, right? They weren't having a, you got to argue me into the kingdom. They were like, I am so, like I needed this. I'm so glad you're saying this, but let me be sure. Let me see it in the word of God. I mean, Paul would be teaching from the Old Testament. We've seen him do that in Acts 13, right? You remember that sermon? And, and then they would stop his lesson for the day. Imagine these Bereans and say, wow, wow, this is awesome, but we need to see it for ourselves. And they would race over to the, to the leaders of the synagogue that were watching over the scrolls, okay? Because that's how they had to access the Bibles, you know, the Bible, the Word of God. They went to the scrolls, and I bet you can just see, I mean, I see like a frustrated like librarian today, you know, just being like, okay, what? You want Isaiah now? You, you want to, you okay, go get the scroll of Isaiah. Like, be careful, right? Like, spread it out. And then they're, they're all over it. And they're like, oh, he's right. <laughs> this would be a suffering servant. This Jesus would suffer and bear the sins of, the, of his people. And they would see it. Man, it's awesome. Oh, the application for me is bursting off the pages for you today, beloved. You've sat now in one of my most boring sermons. I knew that when I put it together. And, uh, you know, I think that we do not need to believe preachers today unless what they say can be clearly seen and understood from your own study of the Bible that God has preserved for you. If a man says he's a man of God and stands in the pulpit and says, take notice to what I'm saying, you need to live this way, and you can't go home with your Bible and make sense verse by verse what he said and see it yourself and say, I praise God, that was true. You have no business listening to him. If what he says bounces off the pages of Scripture as you who have the Holy Spirit and are born again, if you are truly born again and you see in the Scriptures what the man who preaching says and you see it for your own, trust it. That's the Berean spirit. And I just hope and pray and believe, I believe, I'm not here to hound on you, but I hope and believe that you will remain to the end of your day if you be in Christ today. This kind of person. Because you need Berean faith to handle now all the assaults that come upon this book. They are numerous. They parade before you as being said true. They bear the same names even. They will say Jesus the Messiah. They will say Jesus the resurrected Lord. They will say Jesus the son of David. And before you know it, they'll say something like Jesus the, the, the brother of Satan. Before you know it, they will slip in. A word was there in the beginning. And if they're not just obvious, dangerous, destructive heresies, they hang out in all the low-hanging fruit that theology should produce. Do you really need to raise your family like that? You should really raise them like this. I mean, there's just numerous opportunities in our age to not be a Berean. But we're called to be Bereans. Look at their response. They're students of the word. They want the word to cut them. Paul's doing some cutting, and they're like, okay, this is fresh and real, and I'm, and I'm so thankful, but, like, but I won't take you with me, Paul, into my private sin later. So I'm going to need to know it then. 
I'm going to need to know it when I struggle. I'm going to need to know it when you're not there. Let me go see it for myself. And God was pleased to do what? Cut them even deeper. See, the, the sword that they want to wield next to Paul, they understand it to be one that wields both directions. It really is a double-edged sword. It'll cut asunder those that they share it with, but it better also be cutting their own heart. They know the scriptures, these Bereans. And verse 12 says, many of them therefore believed. Make the comparison here. You don't have Bible study this week, so I'll help you. In Thessalonica, they were persuaded. In Berea, they believed. There's a big, there's a big difference here. When we see the word belief, think of John's gospel. Pisteo, of faith. John writes his whole gospel, making it ambiguous in the beginning to make it clear in the end. A word that gives concrete evidence. It is not a, a, a anything that they bat their eye at anymore. They, they're not skeptical of it. They don't doubt it. They don't need to debate it. It's decided for them. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. <laughs> this is awesome. This is why we want to be a church that's willing to preach boring sermons. <laughs> Sometimes you just need to see the word over and over again and then don't believe us and go home and believe it again on your own. <laughs> that's how you sharpen the axe. That's how you don't grow weary in doing good. That's how when Paul's plan comes to fruition for you and you find discouragement and persecution around every corner of your faith, you're able to endure to the end. Because you've tested it. For you, it's not that you need to be persuaded. You've believed. And here you'll stand. Does that make sense? Oh, but. <laughs> but the Jews, right? Paul had a plan. He did it in both cities. Paul had a response. People got saved in both cities. Some a little bit, you know, they struggled on their way. They got there in Thessalonica. Bereans, man, they see it in the word of God. But nonetheless, both faced persecution. Man, talk about hate. Imagine planning a 50-mile trip just to stamp out a religious movement. Imagine making plans that when you get there, you know you're going to disagree, and you're willing to do it to the point of dragging people out of their homes and killing them in the streets. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like Paul, doesn't it? <laughs> I mean, right? Didn't God say when he called him in Acts 9, I have a lot for him, chiefly that he will suffer for me? I mean, Paul is now experiencing on the other end what he did himself. Talk about hate. The 50-mile trek, they show up. The rest of the text accounts that Paul goes on to get away, but he leaves Silas and Timothy there in Macedonia. Luke has already been left at Philippi last week. Paul is carried as far as Athens. He's got to get 145 miles away from this storm that is coming for him. The team is split up. Oh, man. Right? I mean, we, we were just all together. We were arguing about who was going to be on this journey. And now we're all split up. Now we can't even all stay together. But listen, has Satan won? Has persecution ruined the mission? We're going to see next week it has not. Something amazing concerning these churches in Macedonia. Paul wrote letters to them. First and second Thessalonians in your Bible. He wrote to the Thessalonians, and I'm sure the Bereans got the copy of it too, to the Christians in Macedonia, but for sure to the leaders of the church in Thessalonica. They are the oldest Christian letters that we have in existence, mind you. Our oldest copies of letters, Thessalonians, is the oldest that we can date. 
So they were written early. They were written while, likely while Paul was imprisoned in Corinth, which we'll get to after Athens. But the point is, I'm trying to tell you is, I want you to read them in, your, in their entirety for your quiet time this week. I just challenge you. If you want to know the rest of the story, the tale of two cities of, of Thessalonica and Berea, go be a Berean this week. Go sit with God for about 20 minutes. That's how long it would take you to read. Maybe on a drive, put it on and listen to 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and get a grip for yourself about what happened in these cities. See, I've tried to tell you, a man showed up with a plan, God blessed the plan, all right? People were saved, God did that. People were persecuted, can God keep them? Right now, the way our text ends, the leaders are spread out and what's gonna happen? And what's amazing is, is Acts is gonna move on. But you cannot, you could be a Berean this week and you could go and read 1st and 2nd Thessalonians and you will see that God will keep his church, y'all. He will keep it. He will never let the gates of hell prevail against his church. He may ask the church to walk right up to the gates of hell and it may look like that church is on its last leg, incapable of doing what looks like this burning, you know, satanic evil that's taken over them and he'll put them right there on purpose. He'll let them lose their leaders early in Thessalonica, and yet he'll have them, and the report will be doing great things for him. Here's a teaser, and then we'll close. I'm going to read 1 Thessalonians 1. You can feel free to flip there. I'm going to read verses 2 through 10 to you. I want to let this hopeful report lead us to sing today, okay? So I'm closing my sermon now. I will read it and then pray it, and then we will sing it. So pay attention to the theme as you can join in worshipfully. All right? Let me read it. 1 Thessalonians 1, 2 through 10 says this. Paul, writing to the Thessalonians, we give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord so, uh, sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need to say, we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you. And how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. We give all praise and glory and thanks to you, Father. We worship you, Jesus, as the one true son from heaven raised on our behalf, delivering us from the wrath to come. We ask for faith like the Thessalonians and Bereans. We pray that others may know of you 
by our words and our work, like all of Macedonia did because of their love. We pray that you will make us the kind of men and women that Paul and his companions and these early believers were. And we pray and we sing now all praise to you whose power imparts the love, your love, the love of God within our hearts, the spirit of all truth and peace, the fount of joy and holiness. To Father, Son, and Spirit now, our souls we lift, our wills we bow to you. The triune God we raise with loving hearts, our songs of praise. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.